Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning that you are God and Christ is our Savior and God. May the Holy Spirit be among us as well, O Lord, to fill us with new revelation from the written and proclaimed Word of God. We praise you through it this morning, and we praise you in his name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, I'll ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. I'll read a few verses from this chapter. I'll begin at verse 13 and read down through verse 20. And once again, my only disclaimer is I don't in, uh, intend to do justice to this entire passage, though it's not a lengthy passage. It is a deep and meaningful and powerful passage. But we will do what we can this morning, and we will do what the Lord empowers us to do. So Matthew 16, 13 through 20. And so Matthew writes, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Oh, Father, we do pray for fresh revelation in these well-known and well-worn passages of Scripture this morning in the Gospel tales. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name, be with your servant as I expound upon these precepts from your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. All right, so we're certainly not unfamiliar with that passage, I would hope. Everyone's heard it. There's people today who quote from that passage that don't even know they're talking about the Word of God. It's just such a familiar passage. Verse 13, Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? All right? So he's in a region in the north, and uh, the disciples are gathered with him, and they have a moment, and Jesus is doing one of his little rabbinical teaching sessions with the Socratic method where you teach by asking questions and finding out what these guys know. And what they think. <clears throat> so you can make up the lesson plan. And so I, you can see Jesus handing out the, the copies of the, of, of the notes and asking them to read. But no, he asks them, who do men say that I am? It's, it's kind of an odd question when you think about it. Um, but let's get into it. Jesus and the disciples, well, they'd done some traveling by this time. It's been estimated that they've been together two and a half years into a three-year ministry by this time. And so they've been to many places. They preached to many people. You remember he sent them off two by two for a while, and they went off and preached. I always wanted to know which two went with which two. I'm going to reveal to you my inferences because my book, I Am Peter, is coming out in a couple of weeks, and you can go in and see where I've written sort of between the lines and made some, I think, appropriate guesses along those lines. But it's estimated that they've been together two and a half years, they've preached to many people, they've gone to many places, they had mixed responses with regard to their message. And that's always the case, right? That's the case every week. Pastor, that was the greatest sermon you ever preached. Why on earth did you go there with that text? 
I have no understanding of why you did that. No, people have mixed responses to, to the message. Some believe. Some got healed. Some were just made curious for more information. Some received healing and were thankful, and some received healing and were forgetful about it. Remember the ten lepers. One came back to thank them. The other nine, Jesus said famously, where are the nine? <laughs> Don't be one of the nine. Some were amazed and yet not convinced. Remember the Pharisees? They knew that he raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw it happen. And all they could think of was, let's kill him again. Because if this story gets around that he's alive, everyone will believe in him. That's the denseness of the human condition. Others shunned and blasphemed him, and still others vociferously opposed them. But the Lord took this moment to ask his close disciples about their conclusions. Now think about it. It's a question that requires an opinion. Not only a first-hand opinion, but a second-hand. What are other men's opinions about me? He's asking. It's sort of a poll of 12. Surely they had heard the talk. They traveled around. People talked. They buzzed. Surely they mixed in and, and, uh, and talked and had their own little counseling sessions. They may even have joined in the talk with many of their hearers. Well, why wouldn't they? They probably, as a very closed society, they probably knew a lot of the people they preached to, certainly in Capernaum, where Peter was from, right? Certainly when they went to Nazareth, that didn't work out so well, but they knew the people there, right? Now, I wonder if the Lord wondered how much of the local talk affected his disciples. I wonder if the Lord wondered. Friends, we're out there in the world, and it affects us. Please understand the importance, not only of the church, but of the Sabbath day. Be here on Sunday morning, lest the world affect you in ways that are not good for the Christian. So they may have joined in with the local talk and began to be affected by that. Maybe he heard them bantering back and forth with regard to the subject of his identity. Was he just the successor of John the Baptist? Was he just another prophet on the scene? Was he merely a new voice, a charismatic leader? He certainly was all of those, right? Or was there more to him than that? And so the question is an appropriate consideration for every hearer. Friends, that is the question. Who do you say that he is? And certainly it's an appropriate question for every believer. Who do men say? He might just well have asked, what do men say that I am? We read from the previous chapter that after one encounter with the Pharisees, the disciples came to him and they said this. They said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended? Let me give you a little background on Pharisees, okay? They're a sect that came up in the intertestamental period. They were the, they were the um, creation, the offspring of the Maccabees, which is the great zealots, these uh, uh, Jewish military zealots of the time. There were a dynasty called the Hasmonean dynasty. And the Pharisees sort of grew out of that. And the Pharisees were respected in the land, at least until Jesus came around and offended them. All right? They were respected. They were the religious elite. They are the ones with the robes and the hats and the scriptures on the, on the uh, hems of the garments. They are the ones who fasted in public and made their faces look dour with repentance that Jesus called them hypocrites all the time. All right? And so Jesus' opinion of them and John the Baptist before him opinion of them was not so high. John the Baptist said something like, brood of vipers. A viper is a poisonous snake, a sneaky, crawly thing. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? In other words, 
I had no use in casting my pearls before hypocritical swine. So they, their opinion of the Pharisees was being changed. And the, and the disciples, it seems, were concerned that Jesus was offending this group that might well have helped them in their task, or so they thought. So do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Well, what was the saying? Well, Jesus quoted from Isaiah. He said, these people draw near to me with their mouth. This is God speaking, right? Honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship, they worship me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. All right? We don't add to the doctrine. We don't add our opinions to the conclusions which are the doctrines that Christ taught. We don't bring man-made laws and rules into the church. We teach Christ's laws, but they burdened men with other laws, you see. And so they knew that he spoke that against them. Now he was, of course, quoting from Isaiah regarding the false witness of Israel's own people centuries past. But in this case, he had just criticized the scribes and Pharisees for not, or rather, he had been criticized by them for not washing their hands before they ate. There were laws regarding those kinds of things. And so he clearly applied the passage, passage to them, and so the apostles came to him wondering why he would do this. Why intentionally insult this powerful influential group of religious people. It almost seems as if they wondered whether he was aware that his words offended them. I wonder if he even knows. We better tell him. It seems as if they wondered if he cared that some of his words were offensive. Imagine going to Jesus and saying, you know, I, I really think you need to tone down the rhetoric. I think you're getting a little overzealous. You know, just tone it down. You know, we got some um, speech therapists here, some publicists, people that can help you with your presentation. What do you think, Lord? I wouldn't want to be that guy. They should have recalled how he answered the inquiries of John's disciples regarding his identity. They should have just thought this, and you know they saw this. They just were obstinate deniers. So when the disciples came to ask, Jesus, are you the one to come, or should we look for another? John is wondering this. He said, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Friends, are you offended by the gospel? That is a blasphemy of heart. Blessed is he who's not offended because of me. Yes, the message is, heart, is harsh because your hearts are hard. You need a harsh message, the, the Savior is saying. And we could see that on occasion he received in and converted Pharisees, right? I've talked about the so-called three good Pharisees. Surely there were others, but Nicodemus was one. He came to the Lord, first under cover of darkness and later in the open, right? Paul the Apostle was called on the road to Damascus. He was a very zealous persecutor of the church and a Pharisee, right? He puts that in his pedigree, right? Son of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. According to religion, a Pharisee. You know, he's telling me, if anyone was going to be saved by good works, he wrote, it would be me. <laughs> but not so. And of course, later on in the book of Acts, there was Gamaliel, the rabbi, who at least spoke uh, well of the Christian movement. And he says, if it's of God, don't be found opposing it. And so we begin to see why Jesus thought it a good moment to inquire about their thoughts and feelings. 
you know, with regard to his true nature and his identity. For if they knew he was the incarnation of God, the God of their fathers, surely they would not quibble about his speech. Imagine saying to, imagine Moses saying to God on Sinai, do you have to be so negative? Thou shalt not, thou, that's not going to play well. We're a politically correct people. In fact, we're a bunch of snowflakes. He would have disappeared in a puff of smoke if he said that to the Lord. The Lord doesn't care if he's offensive. The Lord isn't like not aware that he might be cutting to the heart. He's intending to be. And so he was concerned that maybe the local talk and the local culture was getting infused into his own and they were losing their zeal and maybe their touch with reality because the reality of deity was in their presence as they stood there. So he pulls their thoughts and feelings. If they knew who he was and what he was, nothing he could say could be questioned as to its veracity, which means its truthfulness, or its intended purpose. Everything God does is intended for good, ultimately. Verse 14, so he gives an answer. They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, which was kind of ridiculous, because he was baptized by John and everyone saw that. He couldn't be him if he was with him and everyone knew it, right? Herod even made that point at one, at one time. He said, I think he's the, I beheaded John. I think he's the reincarnation of, of John. Didn't make sense. He knew that John baptized Jesus. Some say you're Elijah. Actually, that makes a little more sense because there was a prophecy that Elijah would come. Jesus unraveled that for us. He said, John the Baptist is Elijah that will come. He wasn't saying he's reincarnated. Jesus didn't become a Hindu. He didn't read the Bhagavad Gita. He just said, John is the, is the new Elijah on the scene. And, other, and others said, well, you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So the disciples begin to answer the question. Indeed, it seems, friends, they did engage in the local talk. They knew the answers. So he found something out just from that, didn't he? They heard rumors. How would they know this? They heard rumors. They did research. Remember this question? By what authority are you doing those things and who gave you this authority? Remember they challenged Jesus with that? The inquiry regarding his presumed authority, it has not gone away. How do you get to say these things if you're not one of these great prophets? That presumption of illegitimate authority would follow him to the cross. That's what put him on the cross. But after so long a time in his presence, so long a time sitting at his feet, seeing him heal, walking and eating and sleeping side by side with the Savior, and then listening to the speculation of the masses regarding him, what conclusions had they come to? And so, friends, it's a thing that could be asked of any of us, any professed believer. We've heard the same gospel they heard. It may be said of us that we walked after him and heard his words preached and taught. We've all prayed and asked others to pray in our behalf, yet we too may be affected by the talk. Friends, we are all in the world and may be affected by the local talk. We too may hear all the speculation about the purpose of the person and the power of Jesus Christ. We've seen many people profess his name and claim belief in his message. And so many have been found false believers. Even Jesus found that to be the case. Remember one harsh statement he made. He said, you must eat my body and drink my blood or you have no part in me. That had to go hard on Hebrew ears, right? That has to go hard on any unregenerate soul. You have to eat my body and drink my blood. And then we read that 
Many said, this is a hard saying. Who could understand it? And they followed him no more. They followed Jesus to a point, and at the point they were offended, they leave. In other words, who was their God? They were their God. Their precious feelings were their God. And so it's a thing that could be asked of any of us. We too hear the local talk. We've seen many people profess them and walk away. So many are mere nominal Christians, meaning in name, name only. There are even many preachers in our day for whom the Christ of Scripture is a mere motivational speaker, a sort of Tony Robbins on the stage, telling us how to make the best of our, of our lives. We're all basically good, they say. We're all basically deserving. And so Christ is pleased to provide us with what we need to succeed in our chosen professions. I hear preachers talk that way all the time. J.I. Packer, in a good moment, 1990, wrote this about evangelicals. He said, The gospel of the American mainstream says, Though everyone is fundamentally good, what we need and what, what Christ gives us is help and enrichment to fulfill our human potential and to become the people in our hearts we're seeking to be. Is that the gospel? This is Packer on a good day, a day when he dared to risk disunity in favor of truth by criticizing the liberal wing of the Anglican church, which some say he became a part of. If that's the gospel we receive, then it's no wonder some of us would recoil at the idea that another gospel may actually intend to offend some people. This gospel says this, There is none righteous, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Their throat is an open tomb. The poison of asps, another snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of bitterness and cursing. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, it's called total depravity. It's, it's the doctrine of the nature of man, and if it wasn't total, we wouldn't have needed a savior. When liberals argue that an actual substitutionary sacrifice is not taught in Scripture and is not needed because man's essentially good, then why did the Savior die at all? Why did he give his life and bleed and sorrow and feel forsaken? Who but the genuine article, the true Christ, would pay such a price if it didn't need to be paid? If people could just help themselves. In fact, no one would have crucified him for that message. The evangelical position has never been that the soul of man was damaged or dented by the fall. Rather, we believe what the Bible tells us, that man is totally ruined in sin. He's up the river Styx without a paddle. We're dead in trespasses and sin. We're blind leaders of the blind and headed uninterrupted toward the pit of hell. We're born alienated from the life of God. We're in the world and we're of the world. That's how every man is born. We're born into a dark and dying world. And Christ is the light. And only the cross of Christ can change the tragic course of the human condition. Friends, I have two rules for, this, for you this morning. Rule number one, every person, person that is born is born headed for hell. And rule number, number two... Only Christ can change rule number one. And so we see his authority come into question. His choice to bless or to berate was being observed and wondered at. And the Lord was concerned to probe the minds and affections of his beloved. 
in order to see how entrenched in the culture they had become. Friends, it's pretty difficult to extract ourselves from this ungodly, humanist culture that we are immersed in. And please don't try it alone. You'll fail. If they knew he was the Christ, they should know from where his authority came. They should know that proclamations are not opinions. Predictions are not guesses. He sees the future as it is because he ordained it to be. They should know that whatever things he said or did came out of his perfect righteousness and not out of a purely human reaction to testing and torment. He wasn't just mad at the Pharisees because they were mean to him. He was righteous and standing for the righteousness of God. Remember when the, when the masses were on the right track regarding his identity? Remember he came in on the colt and they said, and the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? They were on the right track. But what happened? Well, the priests came in. The religious elite of the day came in. Now the Pharisees heard that and they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And they put the kibosh on that theory. Isn't it what the left loves to do? Take what's perfect and make it partisan. Call evil good and good evil. Friends, that's where we are. We're in a time where people are happy to call evil good and good evil. And it has been prophesied as far as back as Isaiah. So what conclusions, or rather with conclusions like this, is it any wonder the Lord said of them in previous chapters, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of his mouth defiles him. It isn't the food you eat, it's the things you say. Friends, words matter to the Lord. He said as much in his reaction to their blasphemy. Blasphemy blasphemy is a sin of speech. It's speaking out against God. He says, I tell you that for every idle word men may speak, they'll give account of it in the day of judgment. No, words matter to the Lord. And so if anything ever mattered to Jesus the judge, our answer to this question is of greatest importance. And so he asks it, who do you say that I am? You know, that was a more important question for Jesus than who do they say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You've walked with me now. You've been with me. What are your conclusions? Well, we're not told what their answers were. Only Peter's comes through. But I wonder how the masses of our time might answer such a question. How would our own culture, our own generation, answer the fundamental question? I can imagine some of the responses. Some say you're Dr. Phil. Some, Dr. Fauci. Others say you're Joel Osteen. Or the Pope. Or Trump. Or one of the talk show hosts, the true prophets of our day. The ones who really know what's going to happen. That's who you are. These are the same people who say resurrection is a Hebrew myth, friends. It's a mere symbol Spiritual rebirth, isn't it convenient? It happens in the spring when the eggs are hatching and the flowers are blooming and the dead corpses are rising from the dead, all the signs of spring. They're saying he wasn't the actual forerunner, the actual first fruits of our resurrection. His resurrected body was an offering to God at the Feast of First Fruits three days after the Passover, friends. The priest would wave the offering toward heaven in order to bless the harvest of souls some 50 days hence at the Feast of Pentecost. But those were all the symbols. They are the feasts. The firstborn male of the flock, inspected for blemish by the priest, blood sprinkled on the altar, the lamb eaten and its remains discarded before sundown, and the carcass buried outside the camp. All were presaged symbols of what would actually take place when the perfect lamb came. 
The sacrifice of the perfect lamb, friends. The resurrection on the third day. The atonement established for all who believe. A glorified body to every member of the true church. These are the substance. Paul wrote of rituals that they are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is Christ. Christ fulfilled the substance. He's not a mere symbol of rebirth. He's a resurrected body in a glorified state according to the purposes of God before time began. And so the question hangs in the air. It hangs over every person born into the world. It's the only question worth getting right, but it may not be obtained through inheritance or pedigree, through human wisdom or institutional credentials. It cannot be known by intensive study or ceaseless searching or self-flagellation or good works. The knowledge of who he is is the gift of God. It comes from on high. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works that anyone should boast. So verse 16 he says, or rather Simon Peter answered and said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Friends, how is it that he knew that? A better question would be, how is it that the others didn't know that? Friends, there's a great mystery in the Gospels that must be revealed. And that's access to the truths of Scripture are known only by revelation of God. You can't just teach them. I was taught all these things in college. I went to a Catholic college. I I studied religion as a minor uh, study. Uh, Majored in other things and minored in philosophy and religion. And I read the Old and New Testaments or the the textbooks relating to them. It's interesting. You take a Bible class. They don't give you a Bible. They give you a textbook. You know, Luther was in seminary for two years before he saw a Bible. But we know things by revelation, friends. They're a gift. If you believe in the testimony of this apostle with regard to the identity of Jesus of Nazareth, you are blessed. And you're blessed eternally. But you don't get any credit for knowing It's a gift. Friends, if you're granted a great inheritance and now you're wealthy and money is no longer a problem for you, rejoice in the gift. But don't rejoice in your worthiness. It was just a gift. Rejoice in the giver of the gift. That's what we have in Christ. We've inherited all. We're joint heirs with Christ. We own with him what he owns in eternity. But we didn't earn it. We rejoice in the giver. Do you remember this question? And the disciples said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Like, why not just come right out and say what you mean? What's more interesting than the question is his answer. Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now, I take that as it, in some ways at face value, and in other ways I take it as it has not been given to them yet. It's been given to you first and not to them. Now, does that seem a tad politically incorrect to some of you? Friends, let me tell you something, all right, about today's, about the theology of today's society. There is a whole contingent of people in hell who are barking about how unfairly they were treated, but they stay in hell. Get over this complaint system that sort of empowers us and that our politicians want us to be. We're not the complainers of the world. We're the grateful for God's gifts. So if this seems a tad politically incorrect, consider how Jesus elaborates on the statement. Can you imagine someone running for office saying today, here's my policy. 
Whoever has, to him more will be given, and he'll have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That's what I'm for. Can you imagine that? Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. The words of Jesus are a far cry from the calls for socialism and social justice in our day. Remember something, social justice is not justice, it's thievery. And for a reference, some of us have listened to the teachings of uh, Vody Bauckham on that subject. I urge you to go listen to it. Clearly the Lord is the Lord of outcomes. He's more concerned with election than with some post-modern view of equity. A divine sense of sovereignty over a human sense of fairness. And Christianity has been called many names on that account. Friends, society of our day has put the faith under attack for its seeming inequity. It has been called racist. It's said to favor some and not others. And frankly, I see the point in some of those accusations. There are certainly those who've received and those who have not. But the vast majority of those who receive Christ did not receive it with the greatest share of this world's goods and services. You didn't get any particular advantages in life for having accepted Christ, and in many cases condemned yourself to death by doing so. Most who receive Christ remain poor in worldly riches. Look around. So on the one hand, they're favored. Friends, John the Baptist was favored. And look how that turned out. Sometimes that's God's favor. Isaiah was sawn in half by King Manasseh. God's favor. Friends, we're favored, but we're eternally favored. On the other hand, we endure affliction as a temporary condition of this world's faithful. I don't suppose the persecutors in first century Rome were sitting up there in the bleachers in the Colosseum complaining that the Christians in the arena were the chosen of God. Do you suppose? How do they get all this advantage? While they're being torn apart by lions and lit aflame as human torches. Oh, they're the lucky ones. Remember Long John Silver and Treasure Island? Them that dies will be the lucky ones. I just thought I'd throw that in there. But um, I don't think the Romans were sitting up there going, oh, those blessed Christians, look at the life they get. They weren't looking at them like that. They forgot we earned some of the blessings that we enjoy today by creating societies in the Western world that honored God, and so God honored them. Over the centuries, the Lord has seen fit to bless some cultures while others not so much. If that were me, I would say, let's do what the blessed cultures are doing. And that's the way Japan started after World War II. I would not say, let's punish those who are blessed for choosing rightly with regard to God and religion. Let's bring them down. And just remember, socialism doesn't make the poor rich, it makes the rich poor. Insofar as racism is the charge of the day for most of us, I would say that Christ does not call every person of a single race, but... Many from all races. If it was racism, he would only choose people from one race. It's an absurd charge. I recall an Ethiopian in the New Testament who was glad to be saved and who took the gospel back to his African kingdom, and and an evangelist, presumably white or Middle Eastern, who was very happy to evangelize him. His name was Philip. And what of Aaron and Miriam, the siblings of Moses, who were punished by God for complaining that Moses had a black wife? Didn't know that, did you? Now you do. So from the very beginning, the Lord showed no such partiality of the type that has been alleged. You simply don't know the truth of Christianity, and certainly not of Christ. You you may yet find reason to complain. You may say, why am I not chosen? 
Well, I just gave a vivid illustration of that. I don't think that's what the Romans were saying in the Colosseum as the Christians died in the arena. Why wasn't I chosen for such a privilege? If it truly mattered to you that you were not chosen, then why don't you ask for it? Did you ever think of asking? The Lord says he gives to him who asks. One way into the kingdom is to be called. Essentially, everyone's really called that's in. But some come because they ask. James wrote it very succinctly. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. You don't say, boy, I don't have any wisdom. Go ask for some. God gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. In other words, let him ask knowing that God is really able to grant the request. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man think he shall receive anything from the Lord. And then he goes on. You have not because you ask not. You ask not because you ask amiss to spend it on your lusts. So instead of complaining about what others have, why don't you ask of God? For he who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If you then, listen to this, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your sons, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to him who asks? Ask for it. Get off your butt and on your knees and ask for salvation. For the one who can supply it. Verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He used his full name. (laughs) When you're mad at your kids, we were mad at James. James, Matthew, Kasiri, get down here right now. But apparently Jesus does it when he's happy with you. Simon, son of Jonah, Bar-Jonah. I know, I have a theory about that. I'm not quite so sure his father was Jonah. I think that was Jesus making a little wordplay saying, You're like Jonah. You go back and forth. You're a son of Jonah. Just a little thought that I, that I have that I share with you sometimes. Peter spoke this time with uncharacteristic candor and unexpected wisdom, didn't he? Not to worry. He'll slip up again in the very next passage where Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. For you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. In other words, we can know the truth and still mess up. We can proclaim the truth and not be in on the purposes of God. And so he got chastised. I wonder if the other apostles came and said, do you know you offended Peter when you called him Satan? Now, I only include the verse that we may know not to be puffed up by our election and remain ever vigilant to make certain that though we know his identity, we also know his will. But for the moment, The Apostle Peter is commended and shown to have been blessed with incomparable blessing from on high. And at the same time being reminded that in his flesh, that is, in his own intellectual and spiritual resources, he could not possibly have come to that conclusion. God the Father intervenes in our lives so that we may be equally commended by proclaiming fresh revelation. We can't know God unless he reveals himself to us personally. And so he's telling Peter that's what happened. Now notice this. God intervened into Peter's psyche, but Peter didn't know it. In fact, there's no record here of Peter going into a convulsions or into a trance or being slain in the spirit and getting up and going, it's the Christ. No, his eyes didn't roll back in his head and celestial light shine around him. He didn't even know that God had filled his mind. He had to be told that's how he answered. 
God filled his mouth with truth and the boldness to speak it. What is not said, but must be recognized, is that now they all know the truth. Jesus told them many times that they would all likewise be blessed. And that brings us to verse 18, where the Lord says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's the actual Greek word, Hades. Uh, We say hell in English. Um, The New King James has it as Hades. That's That's probably the right translation. Now, I have to pause here with elocution and remark on the fact that this is one of the most misinterpreted passages of Scripture due to a linguistic play on words that only plays in Greek and doesn't play in English. And apparently it played in Aramaic because that's the language Jesus spoke. Matthew wrote it in Greek, but Jesus said it in Syriac. One thing is certain, as you read it in its original language, Jesus is not proclaiming that he'll build the church upon the back of Peter. That's not what he's saying. And the play on words is this. There's one rock in Scripture, and the rock is Christ. And Peter reminds us of this from his epistle where he writes of the children of Israel in the deserts, and he says, and they all drank from the, or rather Paul, and they all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed him, and the rock was Christ. He writes of this again in in the same letter. He says, no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's not changing the foundation here from himself to Peter. So what is the controversy? And what is the play on words? Well, Peter said, you are the Christ. So Christ said, you are the Peter. Now that was Jesus' nickname for Simon. We know his name wasn't Peter till Christ gave him that name. And let me tell you, if Christ gives you a name, that's your name. In the Greek of this passage, the word for Peter is Petros. And Petros, our lexicon says, and I'm going to quote from the lexicon so you can get this in your minds when you read this passage. The, the definition of Petros denotes a piece of rock or a stone that might be thrown or easily moved. A detached stone or boulder, in contrast to Petra, a mass of rock. In the next phrase, the Lord uses the word Petra, referring to an immovable mass. So he uses a different word. It doesn't come across in English because English only has rock, you see? And not to disparage English. It's a great language for professing uh, many things, certainly the gospel. We have more words by hundreds of thousands than the next closest competitor. We're a very, you can say more things in different ways in English than any other language in the world, I'm told. Um, But then he says, you are the Petros. And Matthew Henry says that he does it like this. You are the Petros, but upon this Petra, I will build my church. You understand? Matthew Henry's like me. He imagines what's really being done, and that becomes what we think about. But um, certainly, he's not saying the same thing. If he was saying that, he would have said it the same way. It's a play on words that our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church have seized upon. Now, we may be confused by his language, but Peter wasn't confused. And so he famously wrote of each of us as stones. Peter wrote this in his letter, you also as living stones, like me, are being built up a spiritual house. All the pieces are coming together on the rock, on the Petra that is Christ, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Certainly Peter understood what the reference was. 
Friends, the Roman church has obviously seized upon the notion of the church being built on Peter the Rock and so adding fuel to their unbiblical notion of a long succession of popes as the spiritual offspring of Peter and so claiming the requisite authority of this rock or foundation of the church. I'm going to give you some comments of wiser men than myself. We can always go to Calvin for a juicy critique of the Roman Catholic Church. And so Calvin writes this, Not to be tedious, but as we must acknowledge the truth and certainty of the declaration of Paul that the church can have no other foundation than Christ alone, it can be nothing less than blasphemy and sacrilege when the Pope has contrived another foundation. And certainly no words can express, he writes, the detestation with which we ought to regard the tyranny of the papal system on this single account, that in order to maintain it, the foundation of the church has been subverted, that the mouth of hell might be opened and swallow up wretched souls. Friends, if we change the foundation, the promises fall apart, is what the theologian is saying. And so he notes that if the foundation is changed from Christ to the popes, then the promises void and the protections from the gates of hell is canceled. Now, as far as his gates of hell, I remember being a young firebrand evangelical with my firebrand evangelical friends. And we noted, as you should note, that a gate is not an offensive weapon. It's purely defensive, isn't it? The gate is defensive. So how does a gate attack the church anyway, we wondered. Ah, we came to the conclusion we are to attack hell because the gates can't hold us back, right? I think that was a product of the zeal of our evangelical youth, and I don't believe that's what it's saying at all. But I throw that out there in case you've wondered. Um, so what of the promise? What's meant by the gates of hell the not prevailing against the church? Well, let's make this simple linguistic point again, if we may. The word is not hell, it's Hades. And what is Hades? Well, in the Greek culture and language, it's death or the grave or the abode of the wicked, right? It's actually the name of a god who rules over those things, right? The corresponding Hebrew designation is Sheol. You remember in the, in the Psalms, you see the word Sheol. Well, Sheol in the Greek is Hades, and in the English is hell or death. But actually, death comes closer. So what's promised? Well, for our purposes, we might read it as the gates of death. It makes perfect sense. The gates of death shall not prevail against the church. The gates of Sheol, the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against the church. And though all the power of hell and death pour through those gates to attack the church, they shall have no power over the true church of Christ. Death in any form, under any power of Satan, has no power of the church over the church because it's built on the rock that is Christ and the promises of the gospel, which is his sacred word. They shall have no power upon the church of Christ. We are built upon the immovable rock, and that rock is Christ. So we may say with the prophet, O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? They have no power. Death has no power over the living who have professed Christ. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, we pray, make the promises new in our hearts as we hear them proclaimed today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.